Well, that is the, uh, the theme of where we'll be turning now for uh, today's message in Psalm 37. Uh, hopefully you catch that theme in each of the songs we do. But again, we're turning to Psalm 37 now today, uh, just before, and then we're going to return to Matthew to, uh, next week in Matthew chapter 24. But today we're completing Psalm 37. We're going to begin in verse uh, 21 and read through to verse 40. So I'm going to, if we could read that all together, and then uh, if, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. And then we'll jump right in. So beginning in verse 21. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For, the, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of the man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And you, yeah, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the eternal word and promise of our God. You may be seated. So Psalm 37 is a powerful message of promise, hope, instruction, when confronted by the all-too-common experience where it seems like it's always the bad guys uh, that are ending up on top. It's always the bad guys that seem to get ahead and often at the expense or the detriment of the good or those who, do, or who are upright. The chapter sets out with that, with that repeated command three times that we, we looked at last week, fret not yourself. Uh, which, again, is, as we saw, was associated not with being scared, but with anger. Don't, don't get worked up. Don't become, don't burn with anger. Fret not yourself, verse 1, because of evildoers. 
Verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil. Uh, Verse 8, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. And much of what follows provides the reasonable grounds and divine alternative for the believer to grab hold of and walk in victory over sin and temptation to fret. Fret to fret is 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 sin. And we're commanded not to fret. To not get worked up over the evil. And succumb to it. And its empty promises. And end up fighting evil with evil. Which God forbids in Romans 12, 17. Where he concludes in verse 21. Do not overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. And that's what, where Psalm 37 is really. It's a, just a case uh, a case study, a repeated case study of, of just that, of how that looks, how that was worked out in our lives. How are we to overthrow evil? Well, with good, well, right? How do we overthrow evil with good? And that's where we look. The answer is essentially, one, not with evil. And, we, and he's, he's, he notes that again and again. How do we overthrow evil? Not with evil. Two, Repeatedly we see, by doing good, according to God's goodness, according to God's righteousness, and faith that God's wisdom and promise will prevail. And we're going to, eventually, and we're going to see ultimately how that is, of course, fulfilled and, and made possible in Christ, uh, our righteousness. Psalm 37, I'll just remind you, is an acrostic psalm. That is that each, each of its stanzas, some, some of your Bibles, it's every two verses or so, um, will begin with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so uh, because of that, like, like most acrostic psalms, it's not easy to, it's not necessarily uh, one that has a structure or a flow to it that we can, I can put into nice little points for a sermon. It's just, it's point after point after point after point. Uh, an English writer and preacher from the 1800s, Barton Boucher, uh, Boucher he, he said, um, uh, he observed as a whole, he said, this psalm very much reminds one in its construction of the sen- sententious and pithy con- uh, conciseness of the book of Proverbs. It does not contain any prayer nor any direct allusion to David's own circumstances of persecution and distress, as we usually see. It is rather the utterance of, a, of sound practical wisdom and godliness from the lips of experience and age, such as we might suppose an elder of the church or a father of a family to let fall as he sat with his household gathered around him and listening to his earnest and affectionate admonition. So let us pick up where we left off last week, now in verse 21, as little children seated at the feet of King David in his old age, Speaking the infallible word of God as he was led by the Spirit. First, if I could give a little heading to this next little section, it would be you will know them by their fruit. While we are to look to God to direct us, we need, to, we need not close our eyes to the evil around us to do that. Um, rather, we are directed to observe To open our eyes to the instability and self-destructive fruit of the wicked in contrast to the steady productivity of the faithful. Verse 21, 
He says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. And again, just, actually, I wanted to just throw this in here because I realized I'm taking it for granted for some of us. That Psalm 37, as we seek to apply it in the New Covenant, we're not just talking about heaven here. Uh, God promises to restore, that he's going to make new the heavens and the earth, right? And, and so when, when he says land, though, of course, in, in the Psalter, he's speaking of Israel, which referred to that particular area of land uh, and being cut off from that land. He was speaking of the Jews. The wicked here are unbelieving Jews. He wasn't even getting to uh, the outside uh, nations. So when we, and as, as we seek to apply this as the new covenant, we have to be, I just want to encourage you that we're not just talking about um, the inheritance that we have stored up for us in heaven, spiritually speaking. But, but we, we ought to apply this to the lands, to our, to our Lord who has authority over heaven and earth, um, and to, to, who is with us, uh, who, will, who will not leave us or forsake us. Um, there, there's no reason to, to, to um, rob this of, of the, the substance of the promise here given to us um, to, take dominion, uh, and to take dominion and to redeem what God has set before us as stewards of his grace and of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So again, verse 21 and 22. We live in the time and place where people have never enjoyed more stuff, right? More luxuries, more vacations, more restaurants, more food, in our cupboards, and yet the majority of us don't actually own any of it. Because our debt is greater than our assets combined. A lot of people seem to get a little stirred up by the, the, the I don't know if you've heard the World Economic Forum's idea that you will, be, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Have you heard that? And we kind of, we kind of spooks us out a bit. But the irony is, is that the majority of our population already does own nothing. They just might not be happy yet. I don't know. Maybe that's the only thing left to be, they're trying to figure out. But as immoral and utterly corrupt, um, that our, our, our government inflationary monetary policies, right? If you think of it, printing money out of thin air at the expense of future generations and raking in debt to be handed to our children and to our children's children, rather than an inheritance, we're giving them our debt. We're giving them, you know, our vacations is on, it's on you. We must not lose sight of the fact that this cycle, right, that we, we could point to the, our government, we can point to our rulers, and, we, and rightfully so. We must not lose sight of the fact that this cycle is ultimately upheld and fed by the willingness of individual households to function in the same manner, right? It's just to a smaller degree. We always want more wealth. And when left unchecked, we will steal it. Right? We'll do whatever it takes, even take it from our, our children, our child, our, the next generation, in order to have that wealth now. Right? My, in my time, in my way. I, I have a, just a little illustration. I got, I was, as, just, as I was preparing this, I got a, a letter in the mail from my bank. Telling me that I'm pre-approved for uh, for a credit a, a line of credit, right? And it, it says the the top, the top of the line says, 
It's your line to what you need when you need it, right? There's always people who are willing, like they're ready to give you more, give you more money, right? To give you what you need when you need it. It sounds an awful lot like replace, like taking the role of God in our lives and what He promises to give us, except for His isn't on borrowed uh, income, borrowed debt. Borrowing when it is not wrong, uh, borrowing when in need is not wrong. So uh, to be clear, the laws of God allow and provide boundaries in anticipation that there, there would be such occasions. Uh, and the limitations are often on the lender, right? And, that's, and, and, um, and, get, and with those limitations, there would be wisdom in whether or not they would even lend at times. And, and not allow somebody to rack up so much debt that they could never pay it off because you had the year of Jubilee coming, right? After 50 years, where all the debt, when it came to land, would be restored. And so you wouldn't ever be able to, really, if, if they were following God's law, you would, wouldn't be able to attain all that debt because no one would give it to you because they would know that, 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 uh, that it wouldn't be paid. Um, and so, there, so it, it, allowed, it allowed to for it with limitation, and the observation made is simply that few people are actually as wealthy as they appear here. And the, the, the observation that David's making, and, and we, get, we get all stirred up, you know, seeing all the stuff that people have. And he's, he's pointing out they don't have as much as you think they have. Constantly borrowing more and more beyond their ability to repay. Constantly running into financial problems from month to month, right, with, with no end in sight. The wicked borrows but does not repay, but the righteous is generous and gives. Uh, Proverbs 21, 5 says that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's, that's the sin here. It's the hastiness to, to attain wealth. Also observe here, I, I just want to encourage you that the giving of the righteous is not merely the fruit of a generous spirit. It's not just that they, that they are happy to give, and so they give and give and give. But it's the fruit of a creative and productive work ethic. Uh, verse, if you look further at verse 26, it says that he is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. And so, uh, while we can always be generous with the little we have... We cannot continue to just endlessly give away, as it says, ever lending that which we haven't labored for or invested in the first place. And so the, so what I'm suggesting is that the person, um, what it's saying here, when it speaks of the generous man, it's speaking of the person who works hard, that he, he's diligent, that he might be generous. The person who lives by sight alone looks at the world's resources as a limited pie. Okay, so the, the eyes of, of sight and the way people often look at, at wealth in this world is that it's, there's this, this pie of wealth. Um, and that there's, so there's only a set amount of wealth. And so, th- therefore, if, if I'm going to take from that, if I'm going to take a certain amount of wealth, that means that somebody else is getting less wealth, right? Where the more I have, the less... Somebody else has. 
That's, that's often how we think of, uh, of wealth in the world today. But this is only the case in a society that has forsaken the mandate to be fruitful and multiply in the world and instead become more, and instead, uh, this fails when a society becomes more and more consumeristic in nature. So what I'm saying is that wealth is not found in raw material alone, which is what we, how we often measure it. Right? It's not just in gold. It's not just in, uh, in food and, in re- and in physical things. But wisdom and knowledge and skill and creativity, God says these are all gifts that God has given us to steward uh, and, and to use for his glory. Consider Proverbs 3.13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. And, and, uh, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Right? This wisdom is, 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 it offers a wealth that it, it goes far beyond uh, just head knowledge. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. The very resources right, that we're, we're drawing from the earth and using to, to grow and to, be, to, to, uh, to prosper, it's saying that God, God founded that with wisdom. It says, by understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open. There's much more to wealth than just stuff. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that the resources and blessings God supplies uh, are limited to a set amount in this world. And you often have with the whole climate change cult and, uh, and even if you think of uh, the idea of, of universal health care and that you know, if, if, if somebody gets health care that I don't get, then you know, everyone's going to be robbed of certain health, as if there's only a certain amount we, could, we, 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 have to, we can have. But when God blesses the labors of an individual, righteous man or woman, he's saying that a that he becomes a blessing to his neighbor. In other words, God's blessings multiply in God's world. It is not just a transfer of, you know, of wealth to, from one person to the next. It's a, it's, it has a multiplying effect. The only time this is, as I said, is not the case, is when it falls into the hands of the covetous and proud, and they wield their wealth to the detriment of others. But the passage assures us that such people will be cut off. Cut off from the land in due time. So the righteous man does not only give when he donates to charity. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not just about being generous when you give to charity. But he gives when he works the land. And, and resources entrusted to him. When, when you innovate and when you find ways to be more efficiently uh, cultivating the land and building homes and cars. When you create uh, art that moves and inspires people. When you're able to repair a car faster uh, and quicker uh, and, and have it last longer than you did before. You're saving not only yourself time, but you're, save, you're saving the customer money so that they can invest more elsewhere, right? Like it, it, the more we do better to the glory of God, the more His blessing will flow. When you give time to your children, 
cleaning up uh, their messes, feeding their bellies, uh, disciplining their sins, educating and discipling their hearts and minds. It's, it's not just time lost. It's not, uh, but, it's, but it's time that the Lord has given you and that you've invested some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30 into the fruitfulness of the next generation. This is how God created the world to function. And this is how the righteous, I believe, I'm, just, I'm explaining to you, this is why he is, he is ever lending generously. Because the abundance of the, of the blessing is coming not from man, but it's coming from God. So verse 23 continues, he says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. So the Hebrew word translated established there means uh, to be prepared, to be made ready. It's determined by the Lord. It reminds us, if you're familiar with Ephesians 2, that, that popular, that common verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And we're going to get to that later. But verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which God established beforehand, that we should walk in them. We delight in the way of of his good works, as it says, because Christ Jesus, in Christ, he has reorientated our lives for that very purpose. In Christ, we now, he's given us, we have the heart of Christ, which is orientated towards that, his righteousness and his works. And this corroborates with verse 24 as well. I'm sorry, I I skipped ahead here. Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Right? Making his, his life secure. As I, as I said, this corroborates with verse 24. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. This is very important for us not to miss. It's, it's the imagery of a, of a little child, of, of holding your child's hand as you, you're racing along the path, right? And, and they might trip, and they might, or they might trip over their legs, but you're, you're kind of, they're maybe dangling by the arm a bit, but you're holding them up. They don't fall headlong, he says. They don't do a face plant into the ground. Uh, you, it softens the blow so that they're able, you're able to continue on your way. And this is the same effect that life's trials and suffering has upon the one who commits his way to the Lord, trusting in him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon here, he says, he notes that disasters, disasters may lay him low. He may, like Job, be stripped of everything. Like Joseph, be put in prison. Like Jonah, be cast into the deep. He shall not be utterly cast down, though. Yet he shall not be altogether prostrate. He says this, he says, he shall be brought to his knees, but not on his face. Right? And there I take that also to be to his knees in prayer, but not to his face. Uh, Job had double wealth at last. Joseph reigned over Egypt. Jonah was safely landed. 
He continues, it is not that the saints are strong or wise or meritorious, that therefore they rise after every fall, but because God is their helper, and therefore none can prevail against them. And that's what we read in, in 2 Corinthians 4.8, right? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are fl- afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Right? So, though he may fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. And this is further illustrated in verses 25 to 26. He says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. I believe in context, the children of the righteous that are are begging for bread here ought to be interpreted in a general sense as a rule of thumb. The the previous verse acknowledges that he may fall, that there's going to be times of struggle. But David is making the observation as an old man who has been around long enough to see such tragedies resolved in God's time. And I also note, I believe it's partially, if you think of the context of David, partially the reason why you can say this is because when he, see, when he saw such a man in such a place, the righteous man steps in to care for the poor, to, to, to care for the brother who is hurting and who is downtrodden. Lending a hand to his hurting brother, becoming a blessing to future generations, as verse 26 says. If you consider, as an illustration of that, consider the instance of David's kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Whether or not, we we don't know if he was literally begging for bread, he was crippled, and certainly in an extremely vulnerable state as the grandson of Saul, whose throne had been overthrown, and that usually meant uh, his, his death sentence. Certainly Mephibosheth, though though the son of of Jonathan, of a righteous man and friend of David, was found to be for a time in a mean and low estate. But when David found out about it, right, he saw to it that all that belonged to Saul and his house be restored to Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 9 says, Then uh, King David called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce of your master's grandson that he may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Right? So you see how how it's even in a sense they're self-fulfilling in that, that promise. Uh, yet that he has not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. But next, we, the, as we continue, the, there is a bit of a turn here in, in the psalm, in verse 27. And it's, it's the theme of repentance now. At this point, this, the soil of our hearts ought to be well tilled to receive the counsel 
of, this ne- of the next stanza. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. And that's his word to you today. Turn away. Repent from evil. Nothing stands in the way of your pardon and salvation but your own stubborn heart. Ezekiel 33, 11. As, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn away from evil and do good. Verse 14, later in Ezekiel, he says, Again, I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. Verse 28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Again, this repeated theme just reminds me of the the poem that we sing during Christmas uh, by Henry Longfellow. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. There's those two verses. He says, And in despair I bowed my head. And he's speaking of a time of war uh, and chaos. He says, In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. Why? Because God is not dead. God is not done. He has not had the final say yet uh, in, 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 this, in, in this instance. The word in verse 28, the word translated justice there. It's helpful to note that it's more specifically judgment. It's the word mishpat, which is almost always to do with to make a decision, to decide between what is right and wrong, to judge. Right? The Lord loves judgment. He, the Lord is not pleased with the criminal, with the murderer, with the thief who gets away with their crime. He loves, however, when that verdict is laid and true justice is served. When righteousness is revealed for what it is and wickedness and sin for what it is. As in the house of Jeroboam or Ahab, the kings of Israel, of which not one breath was left when you read through Kings. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Again, it's fascinating as we consider later, and we were going through Galatians earlier today, 
to, con- to consider who are the offspring of, of the righteous, who are the ones who are delivered. And that will bring us to Christ as we will wrap this up shortly. Throughout history, righteous rulers and authorities, though, when you think of what is being said here in the psalm, shelter, that throughout history, righteous rulers and authorities are called upon to be God's means of executing justice on earth, His judgment on earth. As Paul later explained in Romans 13, regarding the God-given purpose of governing authorities, of the righteous ruler, he says in Romans 13, 4, he says, If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He is not speaking of all rulers, or, or sorry, is he not speaking of all rulers there, including the wicked, we might ask. And we can certainly say that God has used He uses the sword of the wicked to bring justice to the wicked. He certainly can and has done that. But the point is clarified for us in this this passage in Psalm uh, 37, if we look at verse 30 to 31. At the end of the day, how can we know the difference between right and wrong judgment? That justice has or has not been executed. Verse 30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Again, justice there is that is that's the same word, judgment. He speaks judgment. He's speaking of the judge pronouncing judgment. He doesn't turn a blind eye in silence in the face of evil, nor does he twist what is just, calling what is good evil and what is evil good. But he judges rightly. Right? John 7.24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Again, what is right judgment? Well, verse 31 says that the law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.8 says, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law of God is on his heart. It is that, how, how do we know his, ju- his judgment is right? That it is good. That it is true. God's, God's law is our standard of, of goodness. Of, of, of reflection of his character and righteousness. And we, you might stop, you might kind of be feeling antsy and say, but wait, you know, judge not, lest you be judged, right? We're not supposed to, to judge. Maybe God, maybe we'll let God judge. But again, God's, he's talking about the righteous man, that his mouth uh, speaks justice, speaks judgment. Of course, the rest of that verse, the people quote of Jesus, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, don't pronounce God's judgment on someone else that you aren't willing to first apply to yourself. Because it will be applied to yourself. So this is David, this David says in verse 31. 
Really, he's, when he says, his steps do not slip. Right? He, he is above reproach in the judgments he makes because he lives it as well. And to the contrary, verse 32 says that the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Uh, Proverbs 26, 27 says that whoever digs a pit to, to trap somebody, to catch them, will fall into it. And a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. In other words, as Jesus said, those who live by the sword will what? They'll die by the sword. And in verse 34, we turn, we come to the final stretch. Again, just reminding us, calling our attention to put our trust in the Lord. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Here is a glorious promise for us to joyfully labor and toil by God's grace for the gospel of the kingdom. Wait for the Lord. Keep His way. Do not act according to your own, you know, your own insight, according to the empty deceit and beliefs of, of the wicked around you. But trust in the Lord, obeying His voice and depending upon Him. Right? Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. So submit to His rules. You don't, you don't have to submit to the rules of the wicked and the way of the wicked and the cheap and empty fruits and rotten fruit of the wicked. There is another way. Verse 35, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Right? And again, this is, he's saying, this is the problem that we see. He just seems to be doing great. Verse 36, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. So he says, verse 37, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Mark the blameless, he says. Uh, it means to, to mark means to keep watch intently as, as the guard uh, is set on the watchtower. It's, it, it, it's David's object lesson to, to the youth, to those of us who are young in comparison to, to an elder in his old age. To look around you. Literally, you could even do it now. Look around you. But look around you in your life as well. Take notice of the man or the woman who commits their way to the Lord. The word for blameless means uh, there means to be whole or to be complete. Uh, it, to take, he's saying, take note 
of the well-rounded man of God, the well-rounded woman of God, and compare them to the man who does what is only right in his own eyes. And then David says, judge for yourself. Right? Who do you think is more likely to flourish and grow in the long run? Leaving an inheritance to their children and their children's children. The reality is not hidden or concealed from us in creation, is what he's saying. If you, if you look around you, you can see it. If we are careful to observe through the eyes of faith and sound reason. And it be closed with these last two verses. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Again, I, I, I'm quoting Spurgeon a lot because I have his, uh, his commentary on the Psalms. And he, he notes here that we have here the very marrow of the gospel of free grace. Um, he says here that the Lord delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Why? Because their deeds are more righteous than the wicked? Right? Because they've done more upright things? No, it says here because they take refuge in Him. In the Lord who saves. And by the way, I, I often mean to remind us and I forget. What does Jesus, what does that, the name Jesus mean? What is, it, in Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, what does that mean? The Lord saves. Anytime you sing the Lord's, as we sing through the Psalter, and you sing the Lord saves, you're singing the name of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 57, 13. He says, when you cry out, He's mocking the, those who tr- would trust in their idols. He says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. Right? He, 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 might, he might say today, let your own righteousness save you. Or let your own justice save you. Let your successful career save you. Your, your good reputation in the community. Right? Let these deliver you. When the pains of death seize you and you return to the earth from where you came. But Isaiah concludes, he says, The wind will carry them off, a breath will carry them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. We already read from God's warning to the wicked earlier in Ezekiel 33, where he said that he, right, he reminds, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he would turn from his way and live. But right after this in verse 12, he continues. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked... He shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. He's saying, yes, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to righteousness. But don't think it's your righteousness that will save you. 
that will deliver you from your condemnation and the judgment that has been laid. He says, though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. In his sin, he shall die. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else and in nothing else. For there is no other name, no other power, no other religion, no other authority under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than in Jesus Christ our Lord. God has made himself clear through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that not only does he deliver the one who trusts in him from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him as he closes there in Psalm 37. But he more, I, we see, as we look broadly throughout Scripture, that he more specifically delivers the wicked and saves them when they repent and take refuge in him. Not only are we saved from the wicked, but we the wicked are saved from ourselves. And so if, as, I, as I, just a couple of last thoughts here. If you fret, if you fret over the current success of the unjust and idolater, let this serve not only as a loving rebuke and a call to repentance to you, but let it be an encouragement to you. This is no, what we have here in Psalm 37 is not a, a pie in the sky kind of theology. Uh, it, it is not saying, um, it, it's not just telling you everything, you know, that it looks really bad out there. Things, aren't, things are looking pretty rough in, in our society and, and the immorality that's, that's going on. But it's not as bad as you think. So just so cheer up, right? It's, it, we're not, it's not saying, it's not diminishing the problem we face. No, it, it, Psalm 37 is staring evil in the face. It's telling you to look at it for what it is and acknowledge that it really is as bad as you think. It's probably even worse than you see. But David wants you to know that God is more powerful And he is more faithful than you realize that he truly is in the present moment and in the time future to come. The purpose of this psalm is not merely to console the afflicted, though it ought to, but also to strengthen your resolve to carry on seeking first his kingdom and righteousness in all that you commit yourself to and in all that you do, praying and trusting Lord, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of, again, as, we, as I noted, of, of rebuke, of correction, of encouragement, and of comfort, and of hope. Lord, I pray that it would direct our hearts to to forsake our wickedness as it calls us to, to forsake our sin, to forsake any kind of anything that we might hold on to, to bring us life and peace 
and that it would cause us to cling and to turn to Christ, and who, who is truly the fulfillment of, of Psalm 37. It's Christ is, is the a manifestation of all that is promised uh, there for us, and that in Him we have an inheritance that cannot be shaken. And so, God, we pray that, uh, again, that you would encourage the saints, Lord, that, that any who come here today and that they aren't in Christ, that they would be shaken, Lord, that they would consider the warnings given to the wicked and that they would understand that, that there is a, a limitation, that there is an end uh, to, to our sin and it is destruction, it is hell, it is condemnation. And that they would hear your voice of grace and of salvation calling out to them today and find refuge through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.